For the last seven years, each spring, I've given a series of messages entitled, We Don't Talk About That, on a specific subject, or put another way, Let's Talk About That. We're going to take a break from our Hebrew series, and before we start our summer series in the summer of the Psalms, we're going to look for the next two weeks at two different topics. Our message this morning is on unity, or what I'm calling the final apologetic or the defense of our faith. Unity matters. But before I begin, let me preface by framing with the following comments. A, this message on unity is not a rebuke, but a reminder of the importance of why unity matters. Not in a mushy, nothing matters in terms of biblical truth or Christian doctrine, but really this is an admonition that came from Jesus himself on the importance unity has for a tangible way a dying culture can see supernatural healing and authentic hope for those who have been born again. B, this message is a reminder that Jesus makes a difference in practical issues that we face today that can and could divide us. One of the two most famous parables ever given is called the Good Samaritan. And it pushes the truth that as true followers of Jesus being born once again, a second time by the gift of the gospel, a new lens is given. And that all challenging issues are to be seen through the gospel, who Jesus is, what he did, and what Jesus does in those who are born again. And the effects that that has in values and speech, thoughts and actions. How do we treat our neighbor, but also how do we conduct ourselves as his bride? And finally, this reminder about this message is that no one has unity perfected. To say unity matters and is the church's final apologetic is not a term that promotes either sloppy love, like who cares what people believe, nor does it justify prideful rhetoric and hard postures. Unity reminds us that Jesus' words cut two ways. The world will know you are my disciples if you love one another. What happens if we fight and judge one another and not grace one another? Why is it, what is a dying culture seeing in a living church, a gospel-centered church like Bethesda? Hopefully, service and humility, and I pray so. But is there another spirit? This is a tender time in this church. We are less than 24 months away from turning 100. And when you turn 100, you know that's worth being celebrated. You'll hear more about our 100th anniversary in months to come. But turning 100 gives you perspective. Pastors like me will come and go. Elders will serve and then pass on the baton of leadership to others. But a couple things happen when you turn 100. Hopefully, wisdom happens. Secondly, probably grace spills out more because we know love conquers all. But maybe the best part about turning 100 and being older followers of Jesus is that we've seen God be faithful even in the midst of tension possible division, where gospel conversations can open up dialogue in the midst of discourse and division. Having gospel conversations have a tendency to say, help me understand. In real time, I was reminded on a Zoom call last week from a high school teacher near Rochester, Minnesota. And he said, do you know that students as young as freshmen in high school are being pressed to come up with their opinion regarding Roe v. Wade as it's overturned in the court? How would you counsel a ninth grader if she were your niece or a ninth grader if she, he was your nephew? In hearing all the deluge of social media comments, do you think this has caused any disunity among family members in the same family? What can you say? There was an article that came across my desk and I sent it 
on to my friend Lindy Gardner from Apple. I said, read this article by Pastor Scott Sauls entitled, God, Abortion, and Me. I sent it to her and she said, Kirk, that is absolutely fantastic. I hope I piqued your interest. If you're watching online, you can download that or paper copies are available at the Welcome Center. And how would you counsel a friend wrestling with the effects of COVID when I went to Quick Trip on Friday and filled up the van? The front page of USA Today on Friday caught my attention. It says this, COVID legacy, grief, anger, and frustration. Over a million deaths have occurred. Those are dads and grandmas, best friends and spouses, fiancés and sweet community folks, and it's still affecting us. How do you handle this hurt and those who are cautious as followers of Christ? I've had to check my own spirit when I went to festival, and I see people that are totally protected from head to toe. I've had to protect my spirit, and instead of asking the question, what's their problem? I've asked, asked the question, Lord, what is their story? So let's dive into this unity matters. Here's the first thing I want to have us ponder. Let's begin with a case study of a very messy church. The messy church is found in the book of 1 Corinthians. One of the themes for 1 Corinthians is unity. And the Bible Project, once again, has done beautiful work on this. You can find this at the Welcome Center, or you can download it as well, too. Five different topics this young church was wrestling with and disagreed about that caused division and heartaches and tension in the church. Here it is real quick. The first four chapters have to do with leadership preferences. There was debate. There was tension. There was disunity on who people liked. I'm a, an Apollos follower. I'm a Paul follower. Do you think they had different personalities? Do you think they had different styles? Of course they did. The Apostle Paul writes and he says, don't forget what both of the primary topic is. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Focus on that. Chapter 5 through 7 talks about the division and the divisiveness on sexuality, on sex and sexual practices. Do you think sexual issues have caused any division in churches today? You bet. Paul writes and he says that the body has been redeemed by Jesus for Jesus and this beautiful gift of sexuality is to be reserved for the reflection of Christ and his bride, the church. It's not my own body to do what I want with, but my body has been bought and redeemed by Jesus and this is a gospel lens seen in their day and that applies to our day. In this messy church, you get to chapter 8 through 11 and it's all about personal preferences. My life, my choice in terms of what I do privately and publicly. But Paul writes, you were bought and legally declared forgiven, and now you're adopted into God's family, and others are affected by your actions. The gospel lens here means don't cause another to stumble, to trip up, to write off the whole gospel because of your freedoms. You aren't your own to do what you want. I know that's very anti-American and super counterculture, but daughter of the king, and son of the Most High, our first allegiance is to King Jesus. He calls me not just to love my neighbors, but my enemies too. Who can do that? Chapters 12 through 14, with all of the, in this very messy church, you get to church gatherings. And you just have to, you don't have to think too, too long to know how many fights and departures and disagreements have taken place about church gatherings, worship styles, worship music, length of sermon, times of service, 
But these worship gatherings that are addressed were the use of spiritual gifts in a beautiful description of the body. How does each play their part, each person play their part in the rescue drama of salvation? How are singles and divorced, married and widowers, young families and teenagers, young adults and empty nesters using their gifts to serve one another? Here there's a small word that's used in 1 Corinthians 12.25 about division, which is the idea of ripping a beautiful garment in half. All our gifts. But Paul says, these are gifts that divide? Don't let that happen. The gospel witness is at stake. And finally, Paul comes to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which ultimately says, really, without this doctrine, there is no church. Doctrine, theology, truth matters here. And the doctrine is the resurrection of Christ. Without the resurrection, we have no hope. Our faith is anchorless. Can you imagine Aaron leading the worship team in a song that says, let's sing about a nice dead religious teacher who lived 2,000 years ago? It would be a horrible song. But the resurrection did happen. That is the hope that we are built for another life. And listen, good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people do. And that's the gospel lens. In this messy church, the gospel is the announcement that Jesus gives a new reality. And so he ends by saying, therefore, brothers and sisters, don't anyone move you off the foundation of your faith. Always excel in the work of the Lord. Now, this is a good chance for a pause in the message that many people, if I asked about this, would have probably a poor story of unity and the process of how they saw that played out because unity means ecumenical and a lack of a strong backbone that will stand up to suffering, difficulties, death, and persecution. So you have to ask the questions, what are the non-negotiable, the things, the pillars that won't change? Where do I even go on that? Well, you can start with what theologians call the four solas. They're Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, and the word alone. If you come from a Reformed background, you might raise your hand and say, what about the glory of God alone? Okay, that one too. The other pillar that we can't move is what you're about to say in just a few minutes here about the Apostles' Creed. I have ministered and interacted with teenagers for 40 years. I began with Young Life in Washington State my first year in college. And as I would talk to graduates like Eric did this morning, I would tell them, find a church that teaches from the Bible, that makes Jesus the center of your, the preaching, and a place where you can use your gifts and grow with others your age. Denominations is second. A month ago, there was a young man who uh, met me out in the hallway. His name is Jordan. And if you were here that Sunday, there was this big pickup and a trailer, and Jordan was coming from New York City on the way to Whitefish, Montana. And I've watched Jordan grow up. Jordan was in a part of my ministry previously. And I looked at Jordan, and I said, Jordan, do you have a home church? He said, Kirk, I got a home church. And we laughed, and we talked about it a little bit, and I prayed for Jordan, and Jordan's walking with the Lord, and I couldn't be more grateful. People hunger. People hunger for unity. Let me illustrate this way. At the end of the World War II, Europe was cut in half, specifically one country, and that was Germany. Germany was split between East and West. And in 1961, there was a wall that came up in Germany. It's called the Berlin Wall. 
But in 1989, something happened. The Berlin Wall fell. My mom and dad were at, in Europe shortly after that. And the Star and Trib the next day said this, East Germany opens borders. And when my mom and dad came back from being in Europe, they, bought, they brought a piece of the wall back for both my brother and I. They were fleeing from what was slavery to freedom in Western Germany. People hunger for that. Let me remind you of what we just looked at in a very messy church. There's five topics, church leadership, sexuality, personal, private preferences, worship gatherings, and doctrinal truth, and they still matter. And aren't you glad? I am so glad that Paul addressed it right here, and he said the gospel truth, the person and work of Jesus is smack dab in the middle. What a great reminder when it comes to unity as we talk about it. But unity matters as well in this way. Unity is not alone. Unity is always wedded alongside holiness. I invite you to turn to the book of Philippians in these um, pew Bibles that are here. I'll give you just a few minutes to grab one. Uh, go to page 1011. 1011. The Apostle Paul helps us understand about why they need to be wedded together. Page 1011. I'll look at three different passages of Scripture in the book of Philippians. In Philippians chapter 127, it says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a matter worthy of the gospel of Christ. Another translation says, The only thing that matters is that you continue to live as a good citizen, one who lives in two kingdoms, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth. Unity alone turns, if, you, if unity is all alone, it will often turn a blind eye to people's behavior or core beliefs. It doesn't matter what you believe. Here you throw out doctrinal truth. And sadly, many of us sitting in this room or hearing my voice or watching online have seen that happen in Protestantism in our lifetime. And it's still happening. But listen, friends, biblical diversity need not be disunity. Let me give you two examples. Both Julie and I have had the privilege of meeting beautiful believers in Christ who come from very different backgrounds, both in Chad, Africa, and in the jungles of Ecuador. And I've met different believers who grew up in a different time before Julie and I met. I met believers in Scotland and England, and Julie met believers in the slums of India with Mother Teresa. We could go on and on. The week before, second example, the week before the pandemic, Pastor Brian and I attended a three-day conference held in Washington, D.C., it was hosted at an all-black church in conjunction with a respected ministry called Gospel Coalition. For three days, I heard biblical preaching from a wide range of pastors, some you'd recognize and others you wouldn't. It was called Pilgrim's Politics. And I realized as these brothers in Christ from with a different background, I realized my, parent, my grandparents were never lynched. My little grandkids were never told you can't drink from a water fountain or play at the park. And my heart ached and wrenched. So let us understand that not all who call themselves Christians are born again. That's the bottom line of a very somber situation in Matthew 25, but let Jesus sort those out. He has the right and authority, not me or you. Philippians chapter 2, turn over the page. A fragmented church doesn't have much of a witness. Did you catch all of the ifs? Did you catch all of the ifs that Aaron read? In Philippians chapter 2, 
if you look at Philippians chapter 2, it's if that and if this and if that and if this, then, Philippians 2, 2, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and in one mind. Oftentimes, if holiness is not wedded with unity, there's an ugliness that can happen. Often what follows is rigorous standards and splits from anyone who you may not disagree with. You're not in my camp, you're out. Ugliness pops its head out with words or attitudes spilling out. Ugliness and hurtful words often penetrate a soul. Be careful. Often people will gather to pray and gossip. So if you talk about what's wrong for 10 minutes, let me just say pastorally, be on your knees interceding for redemption and healing for 20 minutes. Finally, holiness, holiness and unity are wedded together because they show the power. They show the power of the gospel who changes our hearts and our thoughts and our actions. And it's not by our own strength, not at all. It's not our own resources. In Philippians chapter 4, just turn over the page. The verse that we want to focus on is verse 5 that says, Let your gentleness be evident to all because the Lord is near. It's prefaced by a tension situation in verse 2. Look at verse 2. Scholars don't know what was going on with Eudea and Sincti. There was a rough there. There was a rub and a tension there. And the Apostle Paul is pleading with the church in Philippi and saying, don't let that happen. Don't let that happen. Honor one another. Let me illustrate. Each month, our pastors and ministry directors are asked to give a one-page summary of their monthly activities to our elder board. We call these our ministry reports. And the intent is to give the overseeing elders of our church a brief overview of what's happening in the major ministries of our church. We ask them, the, the directors and we as pastors, to work on what four things we're working on, and then three prayer requests. I'll tell you what three of mine are. They're on unity when I ask the elders to pray. Two of them have to do with gospel partnerships we support in our community. But this is the first prayer request that our elders and I pray each month for you. Pray that God will protect our church family's sweet unity from division and gossip. Pray for health in our church family. Pray that reconciliation would take place where it needs to amongst those in our church family. Pray that a spirit of repentance and pettiness be confessed, tribalism and preference would be identified and laid at the cross. Pray against spiritual pride. Pray too that legalism would be torn down as a stronghold and pray that the enemies of our souls would be bound. Pray earnestly against a toxic and critical and disobedient spirit that would leak out against the holy bride of Christ called Bethesda. That's on my heart. Let's just review. Holiness and unity are wedded together because the gospel changes things. Or one author summarized it this way. If we stress the love of God without the holiness of God, it turns out only to be compromised. But if we stress the holiness of God without the love of God, we practice something that is hard and lacks beauty. I don't know about you, but I want to look like Jesus. I want him to use my body and my voice and my personality to glorify him. And so when you hang out with people, you start looking like people. So this is the part, this has been a really heavy message. 
and it's been a hard message for the last three months to get together, so we need to laugh and let off a little steam, okay? So I'm just warning you about that. I've been influenced by a British lay theologian, G.K. Uh, Chesterton. He said this. I love this quote. Humor can get under the door while seriousness is still fumbling at the handle. Let me read that again. Humor can get in under the door while seriousness is still fumbling at the handle. So maybe you've seen these before. It's, it's called When Dogs and Owners Look Alike. Have you seen these pictures before? Maybe you think this is my favorite one. I'm going to share my favorite one with you. Just, I, don't like, I don't have a collar, but I still think it's hilarious. I love this. I love this. That is just beautiful. But my favorite one, I'd love this guy to be one of our ushers. Isn't that awesome hair? That is just awesome hair. Love that guy. Well, we start to look like people we hang out with. And if we hang out with Jesus, we want to look like Jesus. Amen? And when Jesus is in us, he changes us. So I want to show you a video that I've shown. It's a little dated, but I think you'll see the process. I've shown it at different youth camps, and it's entitled, Jesus Wouldn't Do That. You're going to meet a character who looks like Jesus. And I personally, I think my Lord would bust up over how he's this video. But then he would say, son, watch what happens at the end. You represent me. Here we go. Can you turn it up? Guys, check it out, right? Parents are out of town. Yeah. Party at my place. You. <laughs> what about the new kid? The new kid. Yeah, let me go ahead and check that list real quick. Sorry, bro. Not on the list, man. Sorry, right, man. I know. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Not in my father's house. <laughs> You can't sit here. There's no room. Beat it, Judas. Who <laughs> put pork on my pizza? Hey, guys, this is Justin. This is his first time to our youth group. Want to make you feel a little welcome? Hi. Hey. Nice to meet you. Here's the third and final point. Unity is the church's final apologetic. A hurting world is watching. In John chapter 17, if you want to turn there, you sure can. Jesus made this following proclamation to both his present disciples and his future disciples. You want to think what Jesus thought of you? He said this. John 17. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you have loved me. What does that mean? It means this. The gospel, 
because of Jesus, changes sinners to a community of grateful and forgiven members. Churches become spiritual hospitals where good news is proclaimed. Sin is confessed and broken, and grace is declared, and hope is reminded for sinners. Listen, friend, if you're an older Christian, join me in desiring to set a model for graciousness and gentleness. Weep and intercede on your knees for neighbors and friends who you disagree with. Confess even your disdain or lack of love to our Lord privately. He cares about that. He sees that. Ask this question, Lord, am I spiritually smug? I am merely a beggar who got into the kingdom of God because of Jesus, and you are too. Let your first allegiance be with Jesus. And to my younger friends, I would say this word of encouragement. Don't let messy saints and negative narratives that take the headlines sway you too much. There are 10,000 upon 10,000 infectious, beautiful saints who are not famous, who are not successful, who actually might be a little boring, who follow Christ faithfully and pray and intercede for the lost. That's happening all over the place. My, fa- my final college class in my undergraduate studies at the University of Northwestern was a two-credit self-study class. I had to convince the registrar that it was legit. And so I proposed that I would read a series of writings from a man by the name of Francis Schaeffer. Schaeffer was very influential. He was a Christian thinker, author, pastor. He lived in Switzerland. But probably his greatest contribution to the Church of Jesus was that he really introduced or at least popularized this idea of what's called a biblical worldview or a lens that all of us look through, a series of glasses. So for my two-credit self-directed study, I was... I put out a list of all of his books, but one of them that, I don't know, I can't remember if I read it or not, was entitled, The Mark of a Christian. The Mark of a Christian. And that's where I got the idea about the final apologetic. In your bulletin insert, or if you're watching online, just turn that over, and we're going to read it in full, The Mark of a Christian. It says this, Jesus turns to the world and says, I have something to say to you. On the basis of my authority, I give you the right. You may judge whether or not an individual is a Christian on the basis of the love he shows to all Christians. In other words, if a person comes up to us and casts in our teeth the judgment that we are not Christians because we have not shown love towards other Christians, we must understand that they are only exercising a prerogative which Jesus gave them. And we must not get angry. If people say, you don't love other Christians, we must go home, get on our knees, and ask God whether or not what they say is true. And if it is, then they have the right to have said what they said. We must be careful at this point, however. We may be true Christians, really born-again Christians, and yet fail in our love toward other Christians. Jesus here in John 17 makes a clearful distinction between those who have cast themselves upon him in faith and those who stand in rebellion. Hence, in John 17, 21, when he prays for oneness, the they he is referring to are true Christians. Notice, however, that verse 21 says that they may be one. The emphasis, interestingly enough, is the same as in John 13. Not those in certain parties in the church should be one, but that all born-again Christians should be one. None comes to the sobering, now comes the sobering part. Jesus goes on to say in John 17, 21, something 
that always causes me to cringe. If as Christians we do not cringe, it seems to me that we're not very sensitive or very honest because Jesus gives us the final apologetic. What is the final apologetic or defense? That they may be one as the Father art in me and I in them, that they also may be one in us and that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. This is the final apologetic. In John 13, the point was that if an individual Christian does not show love toward other Christians, the world has the right to judge that person as not a Christian. Here in John 17, 21, Jesus is stating something which is much more cutting, much more profound. We can expect the world to believe that the Father sent the Son, Jesus' claims are true, and that Christianity is true, unless the world sees some reality of the oneness of true Christians. Now that can be frightening. Should we not feel some emotion at this point? But we cannot expect but we cannot expect the world to judge that way because the world cares nothing about doctrine. This is especially true in the second half of the 20th century when on the basis of their epistemology, which means how do you know something is true, people no longer believe even in the possibility of absolute truth. And if we're surrounded by a world which no longer believes in the concept of truth, certainly we cannot expect people to have an interest in whether a person's doctrine is correct or not. But Jesus, did not give the mark that, but Jesus did give the mark that will arrest the attention of the world, even the attention of the person who says we are just machines because everyone is made in the image of God and therefore has aspirations for love. There's something that can be in every geographical climate in every point of time which cannot fail to arrest one's attention. What is it? The love that true Christians show for each other and not just for their own party. We are messy sinners, friends. You and I are fighting the everyday beast of sin within us. We fight the devil who hates us, and we fight against values that are carnal culture with our new nature in Christ. We live in the flesh. Our secret weapon is daily repentance, the intake of God's word, the taking of the sacraments, and being with God's people on a regular basis. All those are given to help and equip you battle the enemy for one more day. Let the cross offend. Those who are born again know this truth. Jesus died not to make bad people good, but dead people alive. I pray that our church would be a hospital for sinners. I pray that we would be protected from a spiritual smugness. Let me conclude with a verse and this illustration before we take communion. Romans 7, 4 says in the King James, it has a unique way of framing our relationship. Therefore, my brethren, when you've become dead to the law through the body of Christ, you've been married to another or united or belong. But I love that word married to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. Married. Isn't that an interesting word? That's how God sees us as his body and as his bride. I've shared this story before. I've shared this illustration, but I think it works perfectly in this message. I want you to meet a young bride who in 1956 I think was very beautiful. That's my mom. That's her on her wedding day. Fast forward the story. My mom died. I've shared this before. My mom died from dementia, prefrontal dementia. And it started, it amped up quite a bit. We knew something was wrong when in 2009, my mom burned their house down, their condo down, and they had tremendous smoke damage. They had to get to all the studs of their home. It was a, a standalone townhouse in, in uh, Minneapolis. 
And it was my responsibility as their son as they, both my mom and dad's health was declining to go through all their stuff and they kept all their stuff and a lot of their stuff was smoke damaged. And one of the things that I kept and I wanted to was I kept my mom's wedding dress with all the smoke damage. And I thought, this is perfect. This is perfect. This is what we are. We're the bride of Christ with our mess. We're the bride of Christ with our smudges and our smears. We're the bride of Christ with our sin and our dirt. I mean, who would love a bride of Christ like this? Who would love a bride this way? Doesn't the groom see the sin? How do you make this person clean again? Welcome to the table. This is the table. This is the one who cleans. This is the one who forgives. This is the one who says, I've lived the perfect life. I love you. This is my body and blood. It's been broken for you. This was happening in real time. And there were two thieves, right? Usually, sometimes you see a cross and there's two thieves. One was on the right and one was on the left. And it started by both of them cursing Jesus. And then after a period of time, one of the thieves on the cross says, we're getting what we deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Lord, would you remember me when you, when you die, when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus said, truly, you'll be with me forever in paradise. Wow. Wow. One who is a mess now is forgiven? Friends, this is our hope that we have. We're in the kingdom. We're forgiven not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done. That's what we sing about. That's what we declare. That's what we invite into one another, and that's what gives us confidence that even in an issue that we may disagree with, we can say, help me understand. So intentionally, we plan the communion service after the preaching of God's word. Why? For this reason, that we might be convicted of our sin and say, God, have mercy, that we might confess our sin. So I invite you now, before we take and hear the words of institution, just to close your eyes, bow your head, and confess to Christ. There may be people that you need to say, God, I don't love this person. I'm supposed to. Tell them. Lord, you hear the prayers of your people. And we can only rest in this, that you said it is finished. It is finished. And with that, you bowed your head and you gave up his spirit. Listen, friends, to the words of Jesus. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. The Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Wow. So with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I ask you these four questions for communion. We do this often. Do you believe in the promises found in the scriptures? Do you recognize Jesus' presence in this meal? Do you turn from your sin? And by the strength that God gives you with due diligence, are you reconciled with fellow believers in this fellowship? Amen.